I'm Gail Golick, and welcome to The Secret Life of Death, Episode 2, Graffiti. First the Griswolds, then the Dodges, now the Riches? Where did they come from, and how do they fit in? Turns out that Charles C. Rich was the husband of Nellie Dodge, the second child of Gardner and Fanny. Charles Rich, wife Nellie, and their daughter Mary actually lived at the tavern with Nellie's family, showing up there on the 1860 census, and were likely still living at the tavern in 1862 during Charles's military service, hence the letter being found in the house. So, what of this Charles C. Rich, who went AWOL in Washington, D.C., while on assignment procuring horses? Information on Charles's early life is scant. He was born in 1830 near Freeport, Maine. At the time of his marriage to Nellie Dodge in 1858, his profession was listed as bootmaker. As to his Civil War military service, Private Charles C. Rich enlisted in the Army in the fall of 1861, and by Christmas was gone off to train with the 1st New Hampshire Cavalry. By March of 1862, Charles and his company had been sent to Washington, D.C., serving as part of the 1st Rhode Island Cavalry within the Army of the Potomac. But by the middle of May, Charles had already deserted. Why? It's hard to say. Desertion was a notorious problem during the Civil War, for North and South alike. The extreme battlefield conditions quickly took their toll on the average enlisted men. But Charles Rich had only arrived in Washington two months prior to his desertion and had yet to see any military action and his excursion into Washington, D.C. to buy horses doesn't come across as sounding terribly stressful. It would seem as though Charles had decided he had already had enough and just walked off, hoping to blend into the city. But blending proved more difficult than Charles Rich had expected. He shows up among Union military documents as an inmate at Forest Hall Prison in February 1863, where he was held on counts of desertion. A letter documenting his transfer from one prison to another was still in his file at the National Archives. Forest Hall Prison, Georgetown, District of Columbia, February 2nd, 1863. Captain, I send you Charles Rich, deserter from Company M of the 1st Rhode Island Cavalry for safekeeping. He has been in arrest at the old Capitol prison and elsewhere, but has invariably succeeded in getting off. He had on his person a forged discharge, which I have in my possession. Please hold him until such time as we send away a squad to Hooker's army, when I will relieve you of all the rare birds turned over from this prison. Very respectfully, your obedient servant. Thomas Chamberlain, Major, 150th Pennsylvania Volunteers. In the early stages of the war, things were not going well for the Union, and the Army was hemorrhaging soldiers going AWOL. 
Traditionally, deserters were either shot or hanged, but President Lincoln decided it was not in the interest of army or national morale to hang or shoot men who deserted. Instead, Lincoln wanted to put them back into service with their old regiments, with the understanding they would be closely watched and their pay would be docked for the time they were absent. Major Chamberlain himself covers this issue in another publication, his History of the 150th Pennsylvania Volunteers. He stated that the Forest Hall prison mentioned in Rich's transfer letter was occupied as a depot for deserters arrested in all parts of the country. From this point, after the examination and identification, the prisoners were sent from time to time, under guard, to the regiments to which they belonged. But, in Rich's transfer letter, Major Chamberlain gives us a hint that Rich was, perhaps, more than just a scared kid who ran off from his unit. He had been kept in and moved around to several military-run prisons, which in itself was a bit unusual. The old Capitol prison, where Rich was being transferred, seemed to be reserved for those who did more than just run off. Again, in his History of the 150th Pennsylvania Volunteers, Chamberlain notes that the old Capitol prison was where men were sent whose papers were defective or who lacked written evidence of their loyalty. Throughout the Civil War, the old Capitol prison was used to house Confederate POWs, prostitutes, political prisoners, Union officers convicted of insubordination, and spies. Remember, Rich's prison transfer letter said that he had been found with forged discharge papers, and that would have been enough for Union officers to question his loyalty. It would not have been unreasonable for them to think Rich might have been a threat. At best, his desertion came across as foolhardy, and at worst, potential espionage. During the winter of 1863, the Union was preparing for their spring and summer campaigns, which were going to require as many able-bodied soldiers as they could find. Major Chamberlain and the 150th Pennsylvania were gearing up to leave Washington for the front by mid-February, the same time as Charles Rich's transfer to the old Capitol prison. The Union Army was consolidating its AWOL prisoners and perhaps expediting the review of their files in order to release as many soldiers as possible back into service for the battle season that lay ahead. Private Rich's credentials must have eventually checked out, because at some point he was released from the old Capitol prison and sent back to the 1st New Hampshire Cavalry, where he served until the end of the war, mustering out in July of 1865. For the service he did render, he was paid $100. It's not clear if he was put back into service in the spring of 1863, as Major Chamberlain and other forces began to mobilize. If so, he may have participated in some of the most brutal battles of the whole war. In 1863 alone, Rich's regiment, the 1st New Hampshire Cavalry, fought at Chancellorsville in May and Gettysburg in June. After 1865, all traces of Charles C. Rich evaporate. We don't know whether he ever came back home to Nellie and their child, Mary. 
But based on what happened next, the best guess is that he died, because by 1868, Nellie married Charles's younger brother, John Rich, and the two had one child, whom they named Charles, presumably after his uncle stepfather? Ugh, yeesh. But Nellie would not find happiness with John Rich either. She, in a series of bold moves for a woman of her time, files for divorce from John in 1877, citing abandonment. We assume that by 1877, John Rich had been gone a while, because in 1874, Nellie had another son named George Amos Gale with another man, Amos Gale. In 1878, a few months after her divorce from John Rich was final, Nellie married Amos. Double yeesh. In the end, Nellie and Amos settled in Keene, New Hampshire, about 16 miles south of the tavern. But Nellie and her children maintained a close relationship with her family in Walpole. Nellie and Amos were buried in the same cemetery as her parents, Gardner and Fanny, grandparents Reuben and Anna, along with several of her siblings, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Evidence of the Dodge family legacy has so far come from within the walls of the tavern, the footstone in the basement, and the Civil War letter in the attic. But it can also be said that their family history is on the walls, literally. Oh, I think it's going to look so cool. Yeah. We're standing on the side porch, yeah, so and in the far these, corner along the back wall the are the names. Um, you can read it great. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, Lists and lines of it. names. They, since hmm. April 10th. Yeah, dates and some carved into the wood. <laughs> Most written in pencil on the whitewashed pine boards. Some clear as day, some faint and vanishing. But there they are. Handwritten names. 19th century graffiti. And then mom wanted to take the boards down because they don't look very good and, and put them up in the attic or something, but I didn't want them to come down. Around 49 different names associated with three tenants or owners, dating from between 1880 to at least 1925. The earliest grouping of the names are written under the date 1880 and are associated with the children and grandchildren of Gardner and Fanny Dodge. Nellie E. Mary J. Yardley. C. H. Rich. G. A. Rollins. Henry I. Dodge. Charles W. Dodge. John G. Dodge. 1880 was an important year for the Dodge clan. That's the year that Patriarch Gardner died. The names of his daughter, Nellie Gale, her children, Mary Yardley, Charles Rich, and George Gale, appear in the cluster around that date, as well as the names of Nellie's siblings, John, Henry, and Charles, along with their first cousin, George Rollins. Perhaps, what we're seeing with those names under that date is the commemoration of one of the last gatherings of the children, grandchildren, and cousins at the old family home. It's easy to imagine the family 
coming back to the house after Gardner's funeral service and burial, eating, chatting, laughing and crying, having a few drinks on the porch of the house they all knew so well. And so, some of the gang wrote their name on the wall to help remember this occasion, and maybe to be remembered beyond it. After the deaths of Gardner in 1880 and Fanny in 1885, activity around the house changed. With the parents gone, the Dodge siblings themselves getting older, and the next generation moving away, the old homestead moved into a new phase of use. The property, run as a farm these many years, was turned over to son Henry, who continued to live and farm there. A story in the local paper, the Walpole Gazette, dated May 1891, gives us a glimpse into Henry's life running the old family farm, albeit a rather bizarre one. On Saturday last, H.R. Dodge was driving a sow past J.A. Donegan's in the valley, when she was attacked and worried by two vicious dogs, which so enraged and crazed the beast that she started on a raid from farm to farm, attacking everyone who came her way. Mrs. Royce's was protected in her own house by her faithful dog, and several men had their clothing partly torn off and narrowly escaped serious injury. But the hog was finally captured in a ravine behind Mr. Booth's. It required a large part of the enrolled militia of the neighborhood to make the capture. Ah, yes, the old parable of the militia and the rampaging pig. If I had a dime. By the 1900 census, there's no record of Henry living at the house. Strangely, there's no record of him anywhere, probably an oversight. And instead, living at the tavern is a Harry Jewett in his family. Harry Jewett was the nephew of Henry Dodge, and his occupation was listed as teamster, not farmer. So, who was keeping up with the farm? Maybe Henry? Maybe no one. It's a scenario emblematic of a wider trend. What we see happening here at the tavern around 1900 is the same sorry story endured by the rest of rural New England. Family lines dying out. As the older generations began dying off, there were no younger family members willing or able to take over the family homestead. Many of the younger people had migrated out west or to the cities, and a surprising number of people in Henry Dodge's generation, Henry included, never married, and therefore had no children to pass the estate on to. By 1900, the Dodge Tavern was 100 years old and its management in decline. The big, once prosperous family farm began to wither into an empty hulk. Local John Prentice recalled this turn-of-the-century transition in his remembrances about the valley. It is interesting how productive these old farms were and that their owners were able to raise large families. It's surprising how many fine old New England families leave no descendants. It is a sad thought. 
Though Henry didn't show up in the 1900 census, we do know he was somewhere in Walpole, because he dies there in 1908. After his death, the tavern was sold to Daniel and Margaret O'Brien. The O'Briens owned several houses in the area, and never lived at the Dodge Tavern themselves, but instead rented it out to various tenants. It's during the O'Brien ownership that the second group of names was added to the graffiti wall on the porch. Frank S. Catherine Griffin and Chad. Melina Elizabeth Podwin. Catherine Griffin. James Doucette. Annie Doucette. Catherine and Dan. Dan Rattray. Alice McNutt. Between 1908 and 1918, the tavern was rented out at separate times to sister and brother Elizabeth Rattray McNutt and James Rattray. Based on those names written on the graffiti wall, their large extended family of children, cousins, aunts, and uncles also gathered at the tavern, or at the very least, on the porch. The McNutts and Rattrays were Canadian immigrants and part of an interesting demographic shift in New England at the turn of the century. Just as families like the Dodges were petering out, new waves of immigrants came to take their place in both the cities and the countryside. Along with the French, Irish, Poles, Italians, Germans, the Rattray McNutt clan settled with their extended family in Walpole, New Hampshire, and rented homes in various parts of town throughout the years, making their way doing carpentry work or picking up day labor jobs. In 1910, James Rattray, his wife Margaret, and James's father Alexander were living at the tavern, and sister Elizabeth McNutt was living in the valley only a few houses up from her relatives. During this time, the tavern was being rented out as a farm and living space, but the house still had its impressive second-floor expandable rooms, which were, up until the 1920s, being rented out for community dances. We know this from the preserved diaries of Roxanna McNutt Thompson, the third daughter of former tenants Elizabeth and Everett McNutt. Roxanna Louise McNutt, or Roxy, was born in 1897 in Walpole and lived in various rented homes around town, including the tavern. In 1916, at the age of 18, she married Henry Thompson, another kid from the valley. By the next year, Roxana and Henry had a child, Henry Jr., and they were living in the valley not far from the tavern. Roxy's diary entries document her daily activities and the comings and goings of her friends and family. At first glance, they seemed quaint. She cleaned the kitchen. Henry fixed a window. Her parents came over for dinner. But on second reading, we begin to get a sense of what life was like here in the valley during the late 19-teens and early 1920s. There was no electricity here, no telephones, and cars and trucks were not terribly common. So people relied on each other for help and entertainment. People were visiting each other constantly, daily, sometimes back and forth to each other's houses a couple times a day. Socializing was key to their community here. Local John Prentice remembered, Recreation was mostly of a social sort. 
social visits from house to house. The younger members visited, often getting together evenings. But dances were the highlight of social life for these rural communities. In the year 1919 alone, Roxy mentions some 15 dances being given around town, five of which were at the tavern. One of the first dances of 1919 was given at the tavern, or Valley Hall, as it was also referred. Roxy and her family spent a week preparing for the dance. Sunday, January 5th, 1919. Cold, four degrees below. Katie, Henry, and I went up home and took a load of goods up to the tavern, preparing for a dance. We all worked there cleaning, setting up stoves and making seats, etc. Belnor and Dad were there too, besides all of us girls. Wednesday, January 8th, warm, did my work and went after the mail and over to Flora's. Emma was over there and we visited and had coffee and cocoa and cake and donuts. Junior had a fine time playing with Mary after she got home. They washed the floor in the valley hall today. Thursday, January 9th, fair, ironed and cut out little Henry's romper of gray outing flannel. I tried to teach Big Henry to dance waltzes in one step, but he wouldn't learn, so Junior danced with me. He sings when he dances. Friday, January 10th, cloudy, cold, preparing for dance tonight. I made a cake and a milk pan full of sandwiches. Uncle Jim and Aunt Maggie, Uncle Henry and Aunt Jane, Fred and three or four other were out from Bellows Falls. Uncle Dan was there and danced with Mama. We all had a fine time, arrived home about 5 a.m. Saturday. According to Roxy's diary, just about every holiday was celebrated with a dance. New Year's, St. Patrick's Day, graduations, on and on. They'd either be hosted at a private home or someone would rent a place like the tavern. Sometimes there was a fee to offset the cost of the room rental and to pay the band. Everybody brought some food to share, and of course, there were drinks, though Roxy never mentions that specifically. It seems all were welcome, old and young, if the venue had enough room. And these dances could go late, as Roxy mentions not getting home until 5 a.m. For those late parties at the tavern, sleepy children were set up in a back room while the adults continued to tie one on. Along with all the dances at the tavern in 1919, new tenants took up residence. Another immigrant family, this time from Poland, the Demajics. Jacob and Francis Demajic moved into the house with their children, Victoria, 15, Alice, 12, Felix, 1, and Francis's father, Paul Kuzanski. By that time, the farm and its many buildings were in rough shape, as the property suffered a slow decline since the turn of the century. The tavern would have required a tremendous amount of upkeep as it aged, and so understandably, some things were let go. The Demajics rented until 1922, when they bought the property from the O'Briens. They ran the place as a small dairy, like most other farms in the valley. They had a large vegetable garden, raised chickens, and a bull calf for beef, which son Felix always remembered as being especially fat. 
they had a pair of workhorses to pull the farm equipment, as well as logs for their firewood and for cordwood to sell. For the most part, they carried on here much as they had back in Poland. And though life on the Demajic farm was hard, it was a far cry from the deprivations Jacob and Francis experienced in their homeland. They told their children that back home, even wood was scarce for people like them. When a tree was cut down, people would dig up the stump for every last bit of wood. Their life in America must have seemed like a dream, because here, they owned acres of woodlot. Here, they owned a large house. Here, even their cows were fat. When the Demajics took over the tavern, there was a lot of work to do. They had to tear down many of the old dilapidated outbuildings, as well as the L off the back of the house. The years of use and neglect had taken their toll and left the house in a state, especially the plaster ceilings and the first floor rooms directly under the ballroom where the dances were held. The years of dancing feet had buckled the plaster ceilings, so much so that the Demajics would not allow the house to be used for dances anymore. The Demajics wanted to use their whole house to accommodate their multi-generational family. And although the Dodge Tavern never hosted a community dance again, it still played host to gatherings of the young Demajic girls and their friends, as commemorated by the third group of names on the graffiti wall. Riven and Marlowe. Jesse Grout. Johnny Grout. Clarence Marlowe. Wallace Marlowe. Edward Marlowe. Jean and Ruth. Franny and Lewis. Lewis Pratt. Alice Demajic. Gordon Bashaw. Wilford Bashaw. The people listed in that grouping were all residents of the valley around 1920, schoolmates and friends of teenagers Victoria and Alice Demajic. There's another set of names presented in boy-girl pairs with a large heart drawn around the entire grouping. Wilford B., Alice D., Edwin B., Blanche L., Joseph K., Victoria K., Herbert W., and Mary K. Are we looking at the love interests of the Demajic girls and their friends? That seems plausible, as Victoria Demajic became Victoria K. after marrying Joe Kilburn in 1922. But none of the other pairings resulted in marriages, and by all accounts, the rest of the boy-girl matches were between people who were absolute polar opposites. So, probably just the girls joking and teasing one another about boys. Some things never change. In 1930, Victoria and Joe, and their four children, were living at the tavern along with parents Jacob and Francis, as well as their youngest, 13-year-old son, Felix. By 1940, Victoria and her family had moved to a house of their own in Walpole, leaving Jacob, Francis, and Felix at the tavern running their dairy farm. And it's at this time we find some familiar names pop back up amongst the next-door neighbors, Roxanna and Henry Thompson. However, this is not the same Roxy Thompson who wrote the diary about the dances at the tavern 20 years earlier. 
This 1940 census entry is for Henry Sr. and his daughters, Roxana and Harriet, as well as Henry Sr.'s sister, Emma Boynton. Henry Jr. was still in town, but married with a family of his own. Mother Roxy was, well, there's more to her story. After we left Roxy McNutt Thompson and her diary of the dances in 1919, her life got very busy. She made entries towards the end of August and all throughout September about feeling sick, having headaches and stomach aches and feeling exhausted. She obliquely references these issues for weeks until... September 21st, 1919. I don't feel very well. We all went up home to dinner. I didn't have to tell Mama the good news. She knew it before I told her. Little Henry is a darling. He will hug me and kiss me and ask if I am sick. Big Henry makes tea for me every morning and takes it upstairs for me. He is awful good to me. Looking back from the future, we know how the story ends. So it's fun to see their lives unfold in real time, hint by hint, knowing what's coming. Another baby. Daughter Roxana. Over the next few years, in addition to Henry Jr. and daughter Roxana, there would be a third child born, Harriet. The family would move from the valley and the community where they had spent their whole lives up to that point, when Henry Sr. got a job managing an orchard in Bennington, Vermont. Of course, there's a flip side to knowing how a story ends. Knowing what else is coming for the Thompsons, we are acutely aware of all that Roxy left out of her diary. Roxy's pains, headaches, and tiredness were not all the result of her pregnancy. She was also sick with tuberculosis, likely infected when her older sister Mary died from TB in 1911. Roxy struggled to keep up with the demands of her life and would even be confined to a sanitarium for a while after Harriet's birth in 1921. Roxy eventually left the sanitarium and made it back to their home at the Bennington, Vermont orchard Henry Sr. managed. But she vowed never to be separated from her children again. A subsequent diary covers her convalescence and their life in Bennington where Roxy talks of spending much of her time over the winter of 1925 to 26, bundled up in a bed set up on the porch. Bed rest and exposure to dry, fresh air was the standard treatment for TB in the pre-antibiotic era. Doctors could only treat the symptoms and believed that rest and clean air helped calm the illness and comfort the patients. Roxy's diary entries that winter are just as straightforward as before. Weather, the kids, what they ate, who stopped by for a visit. But they were sporadic. Friday, February 12, 1926. Great day. Sun shone all day long. Was out all day. Dr. Hurley came up. My right lung has been bothering me. He says my right lung is worse. He gave me some medicine to stop my cough. Mrs. Brennanstall came down in PM. Henry got me some fillers for my sputum box. No letters today. The next and final diary entry is dated Monday, 
February 15, 1926. A tear-stained page, with one sentence at the top, written in husband Henry's hand. Dear Roxy, has gone. After Roxy's death, Henry Sr. was put in a difficult situation. He had three young children to care for, a job to do, and his own grief to deal with. He turned back to their families in New Hampshire for help. Roxana's parents, Elizabeth and Everett McNutt, took all three children for a year. After that, Henry Jr. went back to Bennington to live with his father, and the girls, Roxana and Harriet, stayed in Walpole with their paternal aunt, Emma Boynton. It's here that our story arcs back to the tavern. By 1940, all of the Thompsons were back in the valley. In fact, they were more or less next-door neighbors with the Demogics. And, as they say, proximity breeds familiarity. So it wasn't long before young Roxana Thompson and the Demogics' son, Felix, became an item. The couple would go on to play an important role in the next phase of life at the tavern. Roxana and Felix married in 1946 and moved into a converted apartment on the second floor of the tavern, the same house Roxana's mother, grandparents, great-uncle, and great-grandfather, the McNutts and the Rattrays, had called home 30 years before. Roxana and Felix would live the rest of their lives at the tavern, taking care of Felix's elderly parents in turn, as well as the aunt who helped raise Roxana and her sister. They were, like the generations before them, extremely industrious and hardworking. They ran a 15 to 20 head dairy farm until 1957, then raised heifers into the 1990s. On top of the farming, they started a sawmill on the property, cut and sold hay, made wooden pallets, and more. They raised three children in the house, Susan, William, and Judith, or Judy, as in Judy Northcott, my mother-in-law. Over the years, that farm served as the touchstone for Roxana and Felix's children and grandchildren, with countless memories of Sunday dinners prepared by Roxana on her wood-burning cook stove, and long, productive days at Felix's side, mending pasture fences and learning to drive the tractor. Felix and Roxana remained in the house until their respective deaths in 1996 and 2013, with Judy and Scott Northcott moving into the place in 2014. The physical changes observed in this old house throughout its 215 years directly reflect the cultural, social, and economic experiences of rural New England. This house was born and thrived in the era of the stagecoach. When stage travel was bypassed by the rail, it rebranded itself as an expansive farm. When much of the local population moved out west and the large farms were abandoned, the property turned a page and welcomed motivated immigrants who revitalized the farm. And finally, as farming became less stable, it morphed into the multi-use property we see today. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 
It's October, and tonight, the tavern is hosting a haunted house, put together by the seventh generation of the family to consider this place home. For months, the nephews and their Grammy have turned three floors of this house into a series of terrifying tableaus. All must enter, and no one is spared from running the gauntlet. <laughs> Those traditions of sharing, visiting, and gathering seem to transcend time. We add ours to the millions of personal moments witnessed by this house, the details of which have evaporated with time. If you're sentimental, you can think about how many laughs were had around a card table, how many barrels of rum and cider were rolled across these floors, how many babies were born here, how many people died. This home is the anchor of our family, as it was no doubt the anchor to the Griswolds and the Dodges before us. There's something both familiar and comforting, knowing you're part of a lineage who once walked these same floors, sat in these same rooms. It's a connection that, even in this modern age, humans yearn for. We seek it out, in fact. In the 1970s, a man named Vernon Rich stopped by the house in search of that connection. He came to the place that still bears his family's name, the Dodge Tavern, the very place the names of his father, uncle, aunt, grandmother, and cousins cover the graffiti wall, and his great-grandfather's footstone lay hidden in the cellar. Vernon was likely inspired to come by his own family's stories, enough so to go to a place he had never been, knock on the door of a stranger, for a chance to walk the floors and sit in the rooms where his family once lived and breathed. History has a history problem in that it's rarely written by the people who actually lived it. It's left to later generations to deal with. Generations with 2020 hindsight and a tendency to cajole and remodel details, propping up an idealized version of the past. And any detail or event or person that falls short of this standard is intentionally overlooked. History becomes sanitized, monotonized, and therefore inaccurate. And boring. It's never just one piece that makes a puzzle. The overall aggregation of pieces makes the picture complete. On its own, what can you really learn from just a solitary name or date? But put those names and dates into the context of their time, and give them a physical place, like the Dodge Tavern, and suddenly, a name becomes more than a name. John G. Dodge. Catherine Griffin. G.A. Rollins. Charles W. Dodge. And a date? More than a date. February, 1802. July 1st, 1862. Sunday, January 5th, 1919. 
doesn't always have to be about the first this or the biggest that, the most profitable whatever. The true representation of history has to include everybody, even the regular people living their regular lives. It's still there, you know. You just need to look and listen. You've heard the saying, if these walls could talk. If? See, I think they do. Thursday, January 9th, fair. Ironed and cut out little Henry's romper of gray outing flannel. I tried to teach big Henry. James Doucette. Annie Doucette. Catherine and Dan. Because that, that where it was now is not where it was all through the 1802. This may certify to whom it may concern that the smallpox is entirely removed from the public road. Charles C. Rich was detailed about the 1st of May to go to Washington after horses. There he left the party and we have heard nothing of The old barn was where the horses were stabled, and it had a secret cellar under the floor of the grain room. I find it so hard to wrap my head around the fact that entire lives come and go before you even get here. You've made it to the end of The Secret Life of Death, Episode 2, Graffiti, Part 2. Special thanks due for this episode. Historical consultant, Matt Labby. Voice actors, Tom Dernford. Jim Schofield. Jim Bauckham. Teresa Janison. Judy Northcott. Scott Northcott. Chris Northcott. Kate Northcott, David Northcott, and Matthew Northcott. Original Musical Compositions Percussion and Guitar by Jennifer Vanell. Ukulele by Gail Golick. Musical Performances Percussion by Jennifer Vanell at Denver Percussion in Denver, Colorado. Visit them at www denverpercussion.com or call at 720-219-9758. Guitar was performed by Jennifer Vanell at Badger Studios in Denver, Colorado. Ukulele by Gail Golick. If you're interested in more fun with us here at The Secret Life of Death, I don't know, is that even possible? Find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash the secret life of death backslash for weekly posts about my cemetery travels. Thanks again, everyone. <laughs>